Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody. I'm John Marzalek, a host for the podcast, Queer Voices of the South, a LGBTQ plus studies channel podcast of the New Books Network. Today, I'll be talking to my good friend and colleague, Dr. Stacy Reihetzer, about her book, The Healing Otherness Handbook, Overcome the Trauma of Identity-Based Bullying and Find Power in Your Difference. In The Healing Otherness Handbook, Stacy Reihetzer, a transgender psychotherapist and expert on trauma, otherness, and self-sabotage, shares her personal story of childhood bullying and how it inspired her to help others. You'll discover mindfulness-based cognitive behavioral therapy skills to help you gain a better understanding of how your past trauma has limited you so you can finally free yourself from fear and self-destructive beliefs. If you're ready to mend the pain of your past, find power in your difference, and live an authentic life full of confidence, this handbook will guide you step by step. Hello, Stacy. Welcome to the show. Well, thank you so much, John. I'm so very grateful to be here. I'm so happy you're here. And I should tell the listeners that um, Stacy and I had been friends and colleagues for, wow, I don't know, maybe 15 years, maybe 20 Something like that. It's been a, it's been a long road. <laughs> yes, it it's been a wonderful road. So, would you begin by telling our listeners a little bit about yourself? Sure, sure. So, uh, so you know, the in, in addition to the description that you just gave about me, uh, I am a San Antonio, Texas native. I live in Chicago, Illinois. Uh, I am so very passionate about about helping people find freedom from the messages that otherness instills, the messages that they still carry with them about, about how, they are, how they should be, who they should be in the world. That came a lot from, uh, from experiences of bullying, from, uh, from, from mistreatment, from minimization, all of the times that they had to exist in closets and to pretend that they were something they were not or were scolded or chastised or shamed or humiliated or violently uh, mistreated and experienced perhaps even hate crimes and horrible, horrible things in, in response to themselves, whatever, whatever the selves that they bring are. And there's many, many different ways of being in the world. And my book addresses those. And I really consider it my my focus in life as, as a counselor, as an educator, and as a person just moving through life to, uh, to really work to heal the world, to try and, and uh, you know, give people an alternative message from that that their oppressors have in, attempted to instill in them. Beautiful, beautiful. And, and I should add here to our listeners that I always explain we always explain why we brought somebody on to the show. And first of all, Dr. Stacy is originally from San Antonio, Texas, which is definitely in the South. And secondly, um, her book is so powerful in helping people 
understand their otherness and, and finding ways to overcome it. And we just thought it was so important for our listeners to hear about it. And I wondered if you could tell us a little bit about how you came about writing this book in the first place. Sure. Well, you know, and, and, and a lot of my, my story is, of course, embedded in, uh, in trans identity development as a, as a young kid. I was, I'm, I'm 50 and it's so, you know, we can do the math. And so I was, I was a, a young gender non-conforming kid in the 1970s. Uh, and, and this was before the term gender non-conforming was known, certainly to me. Uh, but it was it was just not not language that was used to describe experiences. So I didn't have access to it, and uh, and I didn't even know I was different until the summer after second grade. And, and that day, I, I rode my bicycle to the school playground. It was behind our house that we lived at at the moment. And uh, in the uh, of course, it was the in the summer. The, the, the playground was open and the kids from the neighborhood would go and play on the swing sets and monkey bars and, and ride our bikes around the, the empty hallways uh, of the campus. And on this particular day, uh, there were some older boys that were playing uh, on the swings. And that and I, I rode my bicycle up to me in, in anticipation, as, as you can think about what it is to be a young kid and to want to be uh, to, to want to be there with the older kids and just to kind of want to be with those we think of as cool. And when I rode up my bike up, you know, they were, there was an immediate hostility. That was the first time I was ever called a fag. They said, you know, get out of here, faggot, get out of here. You know, and they just became real. It was just really angry and aggressive. I didn't know what fag was. Uh, I didn't know what that meant, but I, I could read hostility and I could read, uh, I, I could read violence. I, and I, I, I knew fear in that moment. And I, I, I took off, I rode away from them and they were picking up these big clods of Texas dirt and throwing it after me. And it was, it was really, it was a terrifying moment, but it's etched in my memory uh, forever. And, in, and I think the, the reality for me was, was that there were two parts of myself that really uh, came to be that day. Uh, the first of these, of course, was just a whole lot of, a lot of fear and a lot of negative messages about who I was in the world. Uh, and whatever whatever faggot meant, uh, and and also though a more the more important part, and this is what I want to get to, is that there was there was something of a tree planted. There was a small bit of me that that day was uh, learned about resiliency, uh, and that that resiliency continued to be fed and to be grow to grow even as continually negative negative messages came my way. Uh, as more people called me faggot, as it became more violent uh, when I got into middle school, into high school, and people spat on me uh, and and wrote AIDS fag on my locker because it was the eighties, uh, you know, and and the of course what they were they were they were uh, shaming me for what they were outcasting me for was was gender nonconformity. I wasn't like other boys, uh, you know. It had nothing to do with <laughs> sexual identity, of course. I wasn't sexually active and. Uh, in these young ages, but but that's what I was experiencing, and and then as a young transsexual woman, uh, I started my transition when I was nineteen, and I was in Texas, and uh, and and had that whole experience of just uh, you know being being called a dude in a dress, and having so many really really hostile interactions with with people who who sought to uh, who sought to reduce me. And, and when I when I finally got through all of this and made the decision to to become a counselor, it was with an intent that I would do something for 
people so that they didn't have to experience what I had experienced. And, uh, and, and when I, when I became an educator later on and had beautiful mentorship by my own, uh, my own, uh, wonderful wise, wise woman who was uh, supportive me and my director of Sarita Dixon Saxon. She said, if I was Stacy, I'd write a book and, and, it planted a seed and I, I realized that there was a story to be told, but it was a story for all of us. It was, it was a story, my story. It was, it was her story as an African-American woman. It was a story of people growing up uh, in the United States and other parts of the world just and being oppressed for, uh, for sexual identity, for gender, uh, for, uh, for racial or cultural identity, or, or because of some sort of a physical feature about them that somebody else had, had decided was marked them as less than and worthy of shame, worthy of oppression. Uh, it was it was for for religion and for uh, for neural makeup. People with ADHD that had been just horribly mistreated by teachers and other kids in their classrooms. There were so many experiences of otherness that, as I was gathering stories, I, I discovered, and and I it just was finally the point where to to, to tell the, tell the story of us and to to do so with a real message of healing and how to begin transforming all of these messages that we received along the way, all of this hurt that was embedded in our, our histories and to really recognize our, our worth and to free ourselves from what somebody else tried to instill in us. Yeah. And you use the term othering throughout the book. And of course, in your title, you have otherness that describing how people treat people differently just because they're different in some ways and all those ways you just highlighted. And, and how does how does othering affect us, especially those of us in, in the LGBTQ plus community? Well, it, it has a really profound effect on us because, you know, it, for in whatever ways we were othered, for whatever reasons we were cast out, whether it was by our, our family of origin, whether it was by uh, our community, whether it was within our schools, whether it was by a, a religious institution uh, or maybe all of the above and maybe even intersected with other aspects of someone's identity, for instance, uh, for their, their, their race or their culture and their sexual identity or, uh, or their religious tradition, whatever it might have been, there are, are a lot of different ways that people have been othered. And, and what happens with us is that we, uh, we, experience this and it is really very much a profound social trauma uh mm-hmm. and, and to really get a sense of what this is as a, as a as a social trauma i invite i invite listeners to consider just for a moment bring to mind a, a time when you banged your shin and you immediately remember when i say remember the time when you banged your shin you remember banging your shin you remember how painful banging your shin was, you know what it's like to have to bang your shin on something. And, uh, and, and that's, that's real because that pain registers and the anterior cingulate cortex, we just, we register pain, we register physical pain immediately. And then we recall it again and again and again. And we, we recall it for a good reason, because if we can remember physical pain, then we can perhaps not wreck our shin bone <laughs> but yeah. by recalling, you know, Oh yeah, I need to protect my shins when I'm around that, that, coffee table that hits at just the right spot or whatever it is. Uh, now, and, and I want next to invite listeners to bring to mind a time when you felt humiliated. And, and the chances are, if you, if you can allow your mind to drift back to that, 
you know what humiliation feels like and you can recall humiliation with the same intensity of wincing pain with which you recall the experience of banging your shin. And the reason is because we register social pain, the pain of exclusion, the pain that comes with humiliation in the same place that we register physical pain. That's the same part of the brain. So, uh, and so the, and there's a good reason again, because if you remember what humiliation feels like, you will do absolutely everything in your life to avoid ever experiencing that again. So what starts to happen is that we start fearing people who and interactions and situations that we deem potentially threatening, potentially humiliating, potentially outcasting for good reason, because that's what keeps us safe. Uh, mm-hmm. And so our, our lives become so much about this, uh, this emphasis on safety that we, we start existing with, with fear as our, in our forefront. And, and with that in mind, uh, we start developing rules that we begin living by. And, and these rules really are, are sort of an, an, an inner construct. The way to think of it is that we've experienced these things in the external world so frequently, these messages that, ooh, you know, you, you better tone it down so, mm. uh, so somebody does, so to keep yourself safe. You don't want them to, you don't, you don't want to act gay in public. Uh, you know, you better you better tone it down so that people don't recognize you as visibly trans, and so that you can pass as cisgender. Whatever the story is that people are doing, uh, you know, these if, if you're if you're feeling pain, don't name it, don't acknowledge it, pretend it's not there because you don't want to show vulnerability. Th- these are the kinds of things that that we that we learned either you know maybe somebody maybe somebody who was well intentioned told us these things. Uh, or we just learn them as a method of adapting to a really a, a really slanted world that had so many odds stacked against us as queer people, mm-hmm. and and we began responding to this stuff and living by and creating our own rules that I've called the rules of fear. Why is it important, as you say in your book, to explore our otherness memories and get to the I think you call it the root of where this began. Well, that's a really good question because you know when we're when we're doing this, it's important to recognize we're talking about trauma work, and I think people sometimes want to minimize it and say, "Oh, it wasn't so bad. It's not trauma. It's not really trauma." I, you know, I wasn't, I didn't go through through what this other person went went through. You know, and and they'll they'll compare themselves to very extreme cases. You know, to uh, to people who you know have, have been have been. Uh, maimed or, or, you know, or, or put to death for their otherness. And so we say, Oh, yeah. it's not so bad. It's not so bad. You know, I, I, I got through it. I'm, I'm okay. But, but in fact, the, the, the truth about it is that there's a lot of stuff we carry that we've just swallowed. We've just swallowed this stuff. And so we're carrying yeah. it around. Uh, and, and it, we move through life. And what happens is this stuff that we've not ever dealt with just, just kind of explodes it shows up in our in our present day lives, so that we're in a situation where, uh, for instance, we encounter a a, uh, a microaggression, and suddenly we're 16 years old again, and remembering that time when X Y Z happened. You know, we can we can be very uh, advanced uh, intellectually and uh, and very very well socially developed, and be very networked, and be otherwise very successful in our lives and still not have done the work on our emotional health. So if we can begin understanding those mem- how those memories, those early memories are still present, then we create the opportunity to really begin 
dealing with them. As I spoke earlier mm-hmm. about my own metaphor of the day, you know, the day that I was othered and how yeah. there was a tree that was planted uh, and there were a lot of other weeds. Well, that tree is still there. That tree is in the middle of the garden and it's gotten big and it's kind of overgrown and kind of, it, but it's, but it's big and it's mighty and it's essential. But around that, there's a lot of weeds. There's a lot of junk that's there, a lot of distorted beliefs that I had about myself and that we as queer people have about ourselves and having lived in a homophobic, heterocentric, biphobic, transphobic mm-hmm. world that has taught, that has told us that we are less than. We have taken the, the messages we, that, that we receive from the outside world and now we do the heavy lifting for our haters and we actually, and we've internalized this stuff and we, as when we use it to operate in our present day lives. And so it is essential to begin uprooting this stuff because essentially when we start looking at these things, we're really getting to the ability to, we're, we're really creating an opportunity, I should say, to tackle these weeds, to get rid of the weeds that are there, that are just overgrown and that are really uh, disrupting our lives and our happiness. Yeah. You know, and it strikes me as you're, as you're talking about this example from your own childhood about how I know you and I have both talked to clients who've told stories that are not the same, but similar stories of being treated this way as a kid. And, you know, and I know we've both talked to them about how as adults you look back and you think, well, it's no big deal. They threw, they threw dirt at me as I, and I rode my bike away. They called me names. But then if you go back and put yourself in that child role, what it was like to be a child, you realize how traumatic it was, how as a child, it might feel that they could kill you. They could hurt, you know, really hurt you. They, it can feel like um, it's this terrible trauma. And, and we, don't, we don't realize that as adults, it seems like. No, no, we don't. We don't. And, that's, and, and then in our present life, how often we re-encounter fear. And the, and the thing is that, again, if we recognize that the human brain and it's all of its magnificence, it, is, it exists to keep the body alive. It exists to keep us surviving. And so we learned fear uh, in, as, a, as a way to be able to take care of ourselves. So that fear that we learned on that day, with that first time we knew we were othered, was, was fed each time we were subsequently othered. Uh, and, and it's fear that, that we have also gone back to, even in moments where we weren't necessarily being othered, perhaps, but because we have been othered so many other times, we have what's called rejection sensitivity to experiences in which we will perceive rejection even when none is intended or when uh, or in a situation that otherwise might be neutral uh we mm-hmm. see it as oh they're, they're they don't want me because of this they're tr- they're laughing because of me you know I, I think about how many people i've worked with that were that had extreme social anxiety and they really believed that when they walked into you know, a restaurant that everybody's just looking at me um, and they, they, yeah. this hyper, this belief in their hyper visibility because of whatever their, what, whatever about them they thought was, was visibly queer. So, but that's, that's what otherness does. It creates that kind of thing for us. You become hyper vigilant, vigilant to protect yourself. I think you talk about in the book, right? Sure. Sure. Because everything becomes about this and that's what those rules of fear do. They instill that hyper vigilance. And, and one of these that's very common that I see all the time, it's you must work twice as hard because mm-hmm. if everybody's staring at you, if your all eyes are on you, then in your mind, you're, you're recognizing that everybody's expecting you to fail. And therefore, you must work twice as hard to prove yourself, to prove your worth, 
whether it's, and this is, this, people do this in a lot of ways. They prove this work oftentimes in the workplace. I, I you know, my, my first, my first boss, uh, when I had my, my first real job at a call center, uh, was, it was a gay man and he would, he was working extraordinarily hard all the time. Well, why? Well, he was a, he was a Mexican American man it, growing up, it had grown up in, in San Antonio, Texas. And he, it, and he was out and he was out and gay in 1990. Uh, and was oh, new, wow. newly promoted to a management position. So there was the very real thing that, in fact, all eyes were on him. But how? But you can also imagine that even when all, when in those moments when those eyes weren't on him, in his mind they always were. So he had to. So he was always working twice as hard to prove himself. Now this, you think to yourself, well, is there any? That's that's logical. That has to happen. But the truth about it is that. If you're working twice as hard, there's going to come a point where you're going to burn yourself out. If you and I went and bought and bought the same car, the same make and model to, a, a car today, brand new, and you drove yours twice as hard and twice as fast as I do, as I do mine, well, in mm. five years, whose car is going to be in better shape? Ah, uh, yeah. And, That's and a that, great metaphor. Yeah. yeah. It's the same thing in the, in, in, human, in the human body because when people pour themselves into proving themselves in one area of their life, whether it's professional, whether it's personal, because they, it, maybe it's a relationship because they're, they're looking for validation. So they, they, they so desperately want love. They want queer love. They want queer validation. So they're working twice as hard for a relationship and sacrificing huge parts of, of their own, uh, their own mental well being and things that they know they need so that they can show up for this. And so, and, and the only person that's ever served is first of all that that one if in a relationship where we're trying to prove ourselves to somebody mm-hmm. else it may serve them and what's also true is that oftentimes that will attack attract uh really really predatory people who aren't very good for us but in a workplace mm-hmm. you can think about this well who benefits from somebody working twice as hard oh yeah the business yeah. the business will work it may benefit but not not the queer person who's working twice as hard to prove themselves. So ultimately it's a losing game because we're going to sacrifice our health. We may sacrifice relationships. We will sacrifice all kinds of things. And we don't, we don't build ourselves toward happier, more fulfilled people over this experience of working twice as hard. So working twice as hard is a false promise that will not get us what we want, but it is a very logical, uh, way of, of engaging the world because what's because we have been experienced we've experienced things that told us we must constantly prove our worth and prove that we are not what people have said we were so we're pr- trying to prove that to other people but most often we're trying to prove that to ourselves yeah and talk about how this is related to what you call the internal oppressor well, the internal oppressor, you know, that's, it's just an, it's such a big part of us because, you know, you, you, you're just going along and, and that internal oppressor is there to tell you, this isn't good enough. This isn't really, this isn't really a good thing. This is, this is not, uh, this is not top quality. You're not doing, you're not doing 200% right now. That's this, it's this shaming voice that the internal oppressor uses to continually uh, show up and to and to uh, to diminish us when in, in those moments when we're weakest. And this this the internal oppressor loves to show up in those moments when we're hungry, angry, lonely, or tired. And, I, and anybody who's in twelve step understands those that the H A L T halt 
You know, you don't because those things lead to relapse. Why is that? Because if you're hungry, angry, lonely, or tired, you're emotionally very, very vulnerable. That's when the internal oppressor will attack. Uh, and that's and the internal oppressor is that part of us that it's really, really just a, a series of, of beliefs and things that can be changed. Uh, and, and, and a part of us who can be weakened, but that part of us that shows up to try and keep us working, keep us doing more, keep us uh, trying to to prove uh, that we are not something that uh, the society has said we are. It, it's it's easy for us to to slip into uh, these messages that the internal oppressor has has instilled. Yeah, and you you have these great stories throughout the book that um, give examples of of these different concepts. These stories of people who've been othered and how they've been effect, affected by their you know internal oppressor or all these rules. One of the things that I loved is um, you, one of the th- ways that you talk about fighting back against the eternal oppressor is um, using something you call SAS. So I wonder if you could tell us about SAS. Well, I will. And I'm going to tell you, SAS is just one of the most fundamental things that we have as queer people to, uh, to use uh, as, as often as we need to. And I'm, and I'm going to tell you why, because actually SAS itself as a concept for, for me at, with it in, in responding to otherness comes from within our, within our queer community. Uh, my own, uh, uh, my, my older trans sister, she's no longer with us. Her name was Sassy St. James. Uh, she was a, a gender non-conforming conforming boy during the sixties and seventies in San Antonio, Mexican American grew up in the projects, uh, had, so had a lot of things that worked already against her because of growing up in poverty, growing up uh, in, in a in a racist culture, uh, you know, all kinds of things like that, and then being gender nonconforming, and uh, and and beginning her transition then uh, in the late seventies and early eighties, and and yet uh, and yet even in spite of of the rocks that they threw, the violence, the horrible things that she encountered again and again and again. She she created a stage presence, and uh, and she named herself Sassy, and and Sassy Sassy held her ability to talk back to uh, the transphobic world that she grew up in, the racist world that she grew up in, the world that wanted her to believe that she was less than, that she was not worthy. She was she was beautiful. She she could dance. She had talent. She had humor. She she had just so much of a presence. And she was unwilling to allow a, a this world that had told her so much to uh, define who she was. And what we also recognize now, uh, you know, talking about this is that as much as she was talking back to an external world, she was also talking back un- undoubtedly to her internal oppressor uh, and to and proving herself to herself every time she went and she got on stage. Every time she t- she transgressed uh, in the world that she was uh, that she was living in by by just showing up by just being queer by being a trans entertainer uh, and so that's and so it, it occurred to me that if Sassy could do what she did there was something that could perhaps perhaps be bottled up and shared with people as they're reading this and so for me Sass is one of the tools that I provide. Uh, the others are, are clarity, compassion, and creativity. SAS is the fourth. And SAS is when you have made a commitment to change, when there's a voice that's told you that something can be different or better about your life. SAS is you 
using the audacity to to do it, to move forward with that thing that you know is going to make you make you happier, more fulfilled, that's going to be following a dream or or whatever the reality is that you're needing. And that that means of course different things to different ones of us and it's it's at different times. And 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 the truth is that even even sometimes we strike out on something and it doesn't it doesn't pan out as we wished. And 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 SAS is what we return to to keep going and to recognize that doing it the first time and striking out is nonetheless just practice on on doing it. You know, that's on on trying it. You you understand this is somebody who's uh, who studied French? You and, and the truth is that the the first times you try and speak sentences, you're faltering. It doesn't it doesn't sound good. It's, you know, you're you, <laughs> yeah. it just it's that's just how it is in learning a language, and that's what you know you're you know you've, you're just trying to do this. But but as you keep putting yourself out there, you grow, you become stronger at it, and as you keep learning to uh, to trust your instincts more than your internal oppressor as you keep moving toward the light that is your freedom instead uh, instead of engaging once again the darkness the sadness the despair that otherness has instilled that's what allows you to move forward in in life that's what it takes to live an audacious audacious and free life and that's and that's what I guide writer, uh, writers I guide writers too but I that's what I guide readers to do uh, in the Healing Otherness Handbook. It's interesting that you use the word audacious because I was sitting there thinking to myself, I wonder how, and maybe you can tell us, how is audacity related to SAS? You know, it's, it's interesting because I think, I think that SAS and audacity, they're, they're very much, uh, they're really sister concepts. Uh, and, and the, because we think about, about audacity and, and it oftentimes is done with just a, uh, it's seen as negative. It's interesting because, oh, you know, he had the audacity to say to me X, Y, Z, you know, that that's oftentimes the way that audacity is talked about. Well, if I could just jump in, I just, you know, this might may help. I remember when Pete Buttigieg was running for president, he kept saying over and over again that I have the audacity to run for president as a gay man. That's right. See, and you see, that's a great, that's a great way of, of saying that. He, what What's in, and I'm I'm glad he used audacity and not sass. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I mean, he doesn't seem as sassy. Yeah, but that's a different story. Yeah, but it, but but the audacity of that is is meaning is having the radical dream and and having and having the having the power within trusting the power to to move with it to say even though I, even though I'm a gay man and I know I'm going to come up against all kinds of people. We're going to try and throw things to me. Trust that you are not going to throw anything at me that I haven't that I haven't made even worse for myself. And so, there's nothing you can tell me that tells that, that suggests I can't do this now. And and audacity is 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 taking that hope, that vision, and saying I, I'm going to go ahead and go for this in spite of. I'm going to go ahead and do it in spite of you not believing that I that I'm worthy of being here on this stage as a gay man. Uh, I'm going to move forward in spite of you not believing that I have the right to take up space as who I am as a queer person, that I can't express my queerness in a way that is absolutely authentic for me. Uh, and that's, that's really what this is. And that's what we're talking about. So they're very, uh, they're very similar concepts. I think that, I think the SAS, it sometimes speaks to us because it allows us to be just a little bit more 
uh, celebratory of what is queer because sassy feels very queer to me. It is a, yeah. it feels very very rooted in a, a right of queerness that we that we get to claim, and so that's where that that's how I view it. Um, and I think I feel like you know I think if uh, uh, you know audacity is uh, audacity is sass in a three piece suit. Uh, oh, that's a great way to say it, Stacey. Yeah. I love that. Thanks. Yeah. Yeah, and as you, as the listeners can see, she has a way with words. These metaphors in the book are just wonderful. Um, I wondered, you know, we only have so much time. I know because you're a, you're a busy woman these days um, promoting this book. But I wondered if you could tell us, just, just give the listener a taste of some of the different. Um, you have these wonderful activities through the book to guide somebody in identifying and then overcoming this trauma. I don't know if you can give us just a taste of that. Sure. You know what? I think that let's let's do this. Maybe a, a way to just kind of get into uh, into this experience is to uh, is to really bring to mind uh, an experience, a, a story that's within your your background, and it can be something that's uh, that's quite old, or it can be something that's very recent. Uh, a story of of your own of your own othering. And and what what that was and what that consisted of, and you you know what othering looks like. So, and to kind of guide us there, it might be helpful uh, for listeners if you're if you're able to do so, just to uh, just to focus right now uh, on the instructions and just breathe and take this in through the nose, now through the mouth. Once more, into the nose, and out through the mouth, and I'll guide this a third time, into the nose, and out through the mouth. And certainly if you're you're driving on the road or you're doing something else that requires you to maintain concentration, and please do that, and so that you can arrive safely uh, at whatever your destination is. Uh, but alternatively, if you're if you're not, you can you can close your eyes or just cast your gaze down and continue with the breath in through the nose and out through the mouth. And as you do so, just you might have to do lists, you might have other things, distractors that show up. Just allow those to float away. Uh, if they show up, imagine them as a bird and just allow the bird, bird to fly away, released with the word thinking. And just continuing with your breath and allow yourself to really land wherever your other story was. Wherever it's been historically for you, you know, you know what it was to feel other for your queerness. You know what it was the first time that somebody told you what it means to be to be gay or to be uh, to be bisexual, to be a lesbian, to be transgender, or whatever other part of you has been most othered. So just simply notice that. And as you do, just experience that person, that story, as if you were watching it on a screen. It's easy to remember a, a movie, I mean, excuse me, remember a story through 
the lens of having witnessed it while we were going through it. But instead of just doing that, I'd like to invite you to sort of separate yourself from it and imagine that you're watching that story on a, on a screen and noticing the you who was on that day and, and the people who surrounded you, people who were there, and, and really the, the, uh, the background of what was, what was going on in that that, uh, that made this situation as it was. Once you have a, a real sense of that, you you have the possibility now of, of imagining a different a different future for that you. You you have that you who was there then, experiencing this otherness, whether that was then thirty years ago or forty years ago or or decades previously, or whether it was the you last week. You have that. You have that memory with you. But remember now. That, that story and and consider if this was something that was to uh, have a sequel, this story there, what would the sequel be if it was to begin today? What would this new story be for you that was going to begin today? From that history, that story of otherness that was then, what's the you who needs to be here now in response to that? What needs to be different? What needs to be possible? This is an opportunity to really reflect on what can be different from those experiences, all the things that happened for that child. What can happen now to begin correcting that? Whether it's something in your own, in your external world, whether it's something within your belief system and how you've really treated yourself to this point. And, and I invite readers and listeners to reflect on that for a moment and just to kind of allow yourself to, to drift with whatever is possible for you and whatever it is that you wish to be and do differently in response to that moment, that experience from the past. And that's a that's just a, a bit, John, of what uh, of what a listener can expect to experience in response to uh, to this, to their story mm-hmm. of otherness, and to uh, and to what they would get when they encounter the book is an opportunity to really recreate some of these parts of them themselves that have shown up as a result of having been othered. It's beautiful, and there, as you said, there are so many beautiful and powerful activities through the book that you that you share with readers. Thank you. Yeah. I know we just have a few more minutes. I just wondered if you could just, last question I have for you is, and I think it's such a positive way to um, end the podcast too, is you talk about the importance of community, especially for those of us um, in the queer community. Just wondered if you could just speak for a moment on that. Sure. And you know, it's community is sometimes a challenging thing for people because uh, you know, if, if some of the otherness that you've encountered has been layered on by encounters within the, the queer community, because what's true of us is that uh, we, we recreate the same problematic power structures that exist in society. So, so there is racism, there is ableism, there's certainly classism. Uh, it, it is also uh, oftentimes the case that, that uh, the queer is very driven by uh, by 
my uh, gay men of a, of a certain background, and it's uh, that's oftentimes been what's what sort of defines what is thought of as, as queerness. So, so the thing I would say to that is uh, that sometimes you have that there's there's a need to search and to uh, and to find your your pack. And and the thing I would say is uh, the people who who are going to support you are are going to really be the family of choice. Mm-hmm. Are are those that will that will really see to your well being, that want you to exist as a creative being, that want you to uh, to really express yourself and to live your biggest you, whatever that is, your most loving self, your most uh, your, your self who is is really uh, authentic, and and it's you you know that you're with the right people because when you're with them, you feel unguarded. You feel like you can just really be uh, show up in a very real way. You can show up as you need to. You can show up uh, for, for in whatever way you you wish to show up. It's it's your right to choose, and a family of choice supports your right to choose because they've chosen you and you've chosen them. So uh, I, I'm I'm a big lover of queerness. <laughs> I love being I love being queer, and I didn't always used to. I didn't always used to to have a real sense of that. And so it took me a long journey to accept myself uh, mm-hmm. as first, you know, first a, a gay person and then a gender nonconforming person and then a, a transgender person. And to ultimately really come back to this and say, this is, this is really the people amongst, you know, whom I want to be amongst. Uh, mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. that's, that's really what it is. And so it's really about finding one's way home and finding those spaces where where you really identify your pack. Yeah, yeah. Wish we had time to talk more about that, but I know you have another engagement coming up. So I just want to thank you so much for joining us today. Just a wonderful, wonderful talk with you. Well, I want to thank you. It was it was just my pleasure. And thank you all again for uh, for listening. You can check me out and learn more about what's going on with me at my website, www.drstacy.com, D-R-S-T-A-C-E-E.com. I bet you that's probably going to be on the link, isn't it? It is going to be on the link. And I was going to also say that if any of our listeners are interested, and I highly encourage you to read the Healing Otherness Handbook, there's going to be a highlighted title of this book in the description included with this podcast. And you can go directly to that link and um, to to purchase the book, or you can also go directly to the New Harbinger um, publisher website. Great. Thank you so much. Sure, sure. And everyone, um, thanks for being here and listening. And join us again next time for Queer Voices of the South on the New Books Network.